This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual violence, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free confidential support is available 24-7 through RAIN's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. It's January 1976. The town of Coconut Grove, Florida is coming to life as the sun stretches across sleepy streets. For most, it's just a normal weekday, nothing special about it. For Sue Billig, though, it's yet another morning where she has woken up not knowing where her daughter, Amy, has gone. 22 months have passed since the last time Amy walked out of the family home. Almost two years of hoping and praying following one lead after another. All have ended in failure. Most revolve around the notion that Amy was snatched up by a gang of bikers that thundered through town on March 5th, 1974. Two main gangs have featured in these rumors, the Outlaws and the Pagans. It's from the second gang that the most recent and encouraging tip has come. Paul Branch is an enforcer for the Pagans. He's the guy who dishes out discipline where it's needed. Branch has reached out to Sue, claiming that Amy had lived with him for a while in Orlando. He lost track of her after he got arrested, but has told Sue he'll ask around the gang and help reunite mother and daughter. That was almost two months ago, and Branch hasn't been heard from since. But over the past two years, Sue has shown incredible energy and resilience, and she's not about to let a missing biker stop her quest. Sue has been to Branch's trailer only once, but remembers the way. She knows her husband, Ned, won't be keen on her going back out there, so she just doesn't tell him. Instead, she ropes in her local priest to drive her. The trailer park is out of town, miles from anywhere, but Sue is able to retrace her journey, and it isn't long before they pass through the rusty barbed wire fence that encircles the trailer park like a ring of thorns. The priest waits in the car as Sue climbs up a set of aluminum steps to the trailer. There's an explosion of barking from inside, and a voice snarls at her from somewhere deep in the trailer, asking who's there. She identifies herself, reminding him she'd been by just a few months back. The face that appears at the door isn't Paul Branch, though. This man is smaller, dressed in a black vest, grease-stained jeans, and leather boots. Tattoos swirl down both arms. He doesn't offer a name, but seems to know all about her. Seems Branch has been talking to his trailer buddy about Sue's last trip to the trailer, and about Amy, too. He tells her Branch isn't home, so she scrawls down her number on a scrap of paper in case Branch has lost it. Sue doesn't hang around and gets the priest to take her back home. She's barely closed the door when the shrill ring of her phone cuts through the quiet house. The voice she hears is Paul Branch. Mrs. Billig, I've located your daughter, he says. Sue lets out an excited squeal. I had a feeling you would, she tells him. He tells her that Amy is out on the West Coast, although he doesn't give an exact location. A guy he knows has her, but Branch says he won't want to give her back. Sue hears anger in his voice as he talks about it, saying it's not as if he sold Amy to anyone 
It was just bad timing that he got arrested and lost contact with her. The notion that her daughter could be sold right there in the United States sounds surreal, but it's not the first time Sue has heard of the practice. Apparently, it's common in these gangs to sell women to other bikers. Branch tells her he's traveling out west with a buddy next month and promises to speak to Amy on Sue's behalf. If she wants to come home, he'll put her on the next plane back east himself. The fact he doesn't inquire about the reward the Billigs advertised or even ask for money towards expenses makes Sue trust him all the more. After she ends the call, Sue calls Sid Fast, a well-connected biker she befriended in the weeks following Amy's disappearance. According to Fast, Branch is not the kind of man she should mix with unless absolutely necessary. Despite the friendly facade Sue has seen, Fast warns her that Branch is a dangerous man, one who was killed in the name of the pagans. She asks him about Branch's trailer mate, and he recognizes the man from Sue's description. Dennis Kenny, aka Pompano Red, a man with a rap sheet almost as long as Branch's. Fast leaves her with a warning not to trust Branch or Kenny. Two days later, Sue is startled by the phone ringing at 2 a.m. It's Branch, except this time, he's anything but friendly. You've been checking up on me, he says with a slur that suggests he's been drinking. You're slicker than I thought. A wave of panic washes over Sue. Sid Fast must have given away that she's been asking around. She tries to placate him, telling him, you can't expect me not to be curious. To hell with you, he shouts at her. Now you can figure out how to find your kid. And with that, he hangs up. Ned is sitting up in bed by now, one arm around his wife. The phone rings again, just once. But when she picks it up, it's just the dial tone. A few seconds later, it happens again. All Sue can think of, though, are Branch's words from a few days back. I've located your daughter. She might have just lost her connection to the one man who could bring her daughter home. This is the start of a strange relationship between Sue and Branch, one that will stretch all the way to his death in December 1996. But it doesn't end there. Branch allegedly made a deathbed confession that contradicts everything he shared with Sue. In his final days, Branch's girlfriend alleges that he told her that Amy was long dead and that Branch knew exactly what happened to her. Some question the girlfriend's motives for sharing the information. Others who have seen Sue travel the country following up on leads worry that he was just stringing her along for his own amusement. Either way, Paul Branch played a huge role in Sue's life. The real question, though, is what part he played in Amy's. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Paul Branch, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying. His claims of knowing the fate of a young girl last seen decades before. 
It's about a mother's ceaseless quest to find the truth about what really happened back in March of 1974. A family whose lives were shattered by the disappearance and who never managed to put the pieces back together. And the man who was an appointed executioner for the pagan biker gang who claimed to have answers to it all. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. We're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. After their second phone call, Sue writes Branch a letter stressing that she's not trying to cause trouble for him by checking out his background. Her only goal is to find Amy. Nothing more. Sue begs him to reconsider. Finally, a little after 3 a.m. on January 18, 1976, the phone rings waking Sue from an already broken sleep. It's Branch. He cautions her against involving anyone else, telling her no matter how pure her motives, everyone has an agenda in the biker world. He says he'll reconsider their relationship if she lets him do things his way. Sue agrees and feels the spark of hope rekindled. Branch says he'll be in touch, but after he ends the call, it'll be weeks before she hears from him again. In the meantime, Detective Ina Shepard of the Miami PD is still working the case. She calls Sue to say they've had both Branch and his trailer buddy, Dennis Kenny, a.k.a. Pompano Red, in for questioning. Police in Virginia wanted to question Kenny about three counts of murder, and Branch came along to help his friend out. Shepard took the opportunity to show both men photos of Amy. Branch told Shepard that he wasn't 100% certain the girl he saw was Amy, and didn't want to get the Billig's hopes up. The change in his story baffles Sue, and she insists he's probably trying to distance himself from a kidnapping charge. Shepard shares that Branch is due to head to Omaha, Nebraska, where he says he will see the girl he's told Sue about. She's with another biker called Dishrag Harry. Sue asks if there's any way to pressure Branch into giving up the location, but Shepard says no. While he's done some pretty horrible stuff in the past, Branch is not currently wanted for any crimes. Over the weeks that follow, Branch calls Sue a few times, but keeps his cards close to his chest, only telling her about his intended journey to see Amy, but never anything more specific. Sue's patience is wearing thin, and in the first week of March 1976, she takes a trip back out to Branch's trailer, accompanied by the private investigator working Amy's case, Frank Rubino. 
Branch scowls at Sue's insistence that Rubino isn't a cop, but lets them in anyway. I wish I'd never called you, he tells her. Red's in jail, and they busted me a couple nights ago for DUI and possession of a firearm. He tells Sue he can't head to Nebraska now and that he has the charges hanging over his head. Rubino interrupts, telling Branch he's also a qualified attorney. He offers to represent Branch for free if he'll find Amy once they're done. Branch isn't one to look a gift horse in the mouth and gladly takes Rubino up on the offer. Branch tells Sue a friend of his is heading to Nebraska and will send back pictures so they can confirm that it's Amy. Rubino, true to his word, gets the DUI thrown out on April 7th. In late May, Branch tells Sue that his buddy has made the trip to Nebraska. He has found Amy. Getting the picture may take a little more time, though, as the biker she's with now, Dishrag Harry, is trying to keep her hidden. Sue feels she's so close now, she can almost reach out and touch her daughter. Because the gun charges are more serious than he'd usually handle, Rubino brings another attorney on board called Rex Ryland. It pays off when, in the last week of May, Ryland calls Sue to tell her all charges are dropped. Branch is free to travel and to take Sue to Amy. But typically, with Branch, there's always one more hurdle. He calls Sue on June 1st, 1976, saying he needs $125 for repairs to his bike before he can ride anywhere. He still refuses to share any more specifics on Amy's location and only says that getting a picture of her had proven more difficult than they thought. Sue is exasperated, but agrees to pay him on one condition. She makes him agree to tell Rex Ryland everything about Amy's whereabouts under attorney-client privilege. This will be Sue's insurance, just in case something happens to Branch before he tells Sue. All Branch will say to Sue for now is that Amy has moved to a large town in Oklahoma. He'll call her when he's two days' ride away, so she can fly out and meet them. Sue grabs his hand. Tell me it's really going to happen this time, Paul, she says. I got no reason to lie, he replies. If I was going to con you, I'd be squeezing out a lot more than $125. Branch warns her that over these past few years, Amy has been introduced to all sorts of narcotics. It's a common tactic by bikers to either lure women into their world or keep them so out of it that the notion of escape never occurs. Amy might be so far down that path that she might not even recognize her own mother. As distressing as this is to hear, Sue stays composed, whatever it takes to get her girl back. Branch promises to call when he leaves, and Sue is left hoping that this time he'll make good on it. True to his word, Branch calls on June 8th to say he is heading off. He confirms that he's spoken to Rex Ryland and that he shared everything he knows with the attorney. Sue calls Ryland, who confirms Branch has given Tulsa as Amy's location. Although he didn't have an address for Dishrag Harry, Branch gave them Harry's last name, Kramer. Sue and Ned agree that when the next call comes, she'll fly out to Oklahoma with Ryland, leaving Ned at home to run their art gallery. It's the only thing that's keeping the family's finances afloat and paying for the trip out west. 
The next five days pass in slow motion. Sue keeps busy tidying Amy's room, even buying new sheets for the bed. Branch said the drive would take him a week. So even though he hasn't been in touch, Sue takes him at his word and arranges flights to Tulsa for Saturday the 13th of June. She and Rex check in at a downtown Holiday Inn. The plan is that when Branch calls the Billick House in Coconut Grove, Ned will notify Sue and she'll be ready to drop everything and head to wherever he tells her. When there's still no word from Branch by Sunday, Sue decides to take matters into her own hands. She and Ryland drive around, going into any biker's bars they see, showing patrons pictures of Amy, but she's met with stony silence. On Monday, Rex tells Sue he's needed urgently back in Miami on another case. She's adamant that she won't leave without Amy. But when Branch still hasn't called by Wednesday, she speaks to local police who agree to look into it. At 11 p.m. that night, Rex calls to say that Branch has been in touch. Something about his grandma being in intensive care, and he'll be there as soon as she's out. The past few years have made Sue resilient, but she's getting worn down by Branch's constant excuses. What else can she do, though, but sit and wait, using her now-depleted funds on night after night in a hotel? Rex gets word to her on June 18th that Branch is planning to set off in two days' time. He should be there by the 23rd at the latest. It's more than a week later when Branch finally arrives in Tulsa, though, blaming a five-day stay in an Alabama jail, but he doesn't share what for. True to form, Branch tells her he's strapped for cash and needs a room. Sue begrudgingly pays for not only that, but for his dinner, too. The most he'll tell her in return is that he plans to head to a concert later that week where he'll get to speak to a few of Dishrag Harry's friends. Sue ends up giving him another $67 for expenses, and he promises to be in touch as soon as he knows more. She starts calling his hotel room three days later. On the fourth day, the receptionist tells her the bad news. Branch checked out the day before. It's a crushing blow, but Sue takes it in stride. Instead of heading back east, she speaks to Tulsa PD again. Officers show Amy's pictures to snitches and sources, a few of whom say she looked familiar, but that's as far as it goes. It gets to July 12th, one month since Sue arrived in Tulsa, and she still isn't ready to give up yet. Sue spends her nights going around to biker bars, showing her daughter's picture, but the costs of the trip are crippling, and she heads home that week, almost $800 poorer and nothing to show for it. Tulsa police keep looking. Detectives get in touch anytime they arrest a girl who matches Amy's description. The pictures they send through are all strangers. As for Branch, he's dropped off the face of the earth. Sue is starting to wonder if he'll ever resurface and give her the information she so desperately craves. That hope seems to be snuffed out in December 1976, when Tulsa PD call with alarming news. They've just arrested a bunch of bikers from a rival gang, known as the Rogues, who claim they killed Paul Branch back in July. Turns out that Branch leads a charmed life, though. He calls Rex Ryland on December 8th. He's been in hiding since the Rogues almost finished him off. He claims the questions he was asking about Dishrag Harry got him in a world of trouble. The Rogues had beaten him badly, busted both kneecaps, 
and shot him twice in the stomach before leaving him for dead. He's been recuperating and even now needs a cane to walk. Sue asks when she can speak to him, but Branch doesn't share his whereabouts or give a number. She's once again at his mercy. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. With no way of contacting the man Sue feels is the most solid link to her daughter, the search for Amy goes on without Branch. There's still a steady stream of people coming forward saying they have information to share. Most want money for their trouble, though, and Sue is too savvy to part with cash. She'll happily give them the full 2000 once her daughter is back safe, she tells them, but until then, they won't get a penny. In March 1977, Tulsa PD called to say they found Harry Kramer, the man Branch claims has Amy. But Kramer says he doesn't have Amy and hasn't left the state for over a decade. He admits to knowing Branch, but swears that he himself has never been known by the nickname of Dishrack. It's the latest in a line of confusing inconsistencies in Branch's story. All the leads that become dead ends start to make Sue wonder if what's coming her way is disinformation. Whether it's Branch himself or others in the biker world, sending her scurrying off to chase false leads. Things take an even more sinister turn when Sue receives a death threat. It's relayed through Rex Ryland, who takes a late night call from a biker who refuses to give his name. The message is simple and to the point. Sue had better quit asking so many questions where she'll end up being used for target practice in the Everglades. These aren't people who make idle threats, but it doesn't deter Sue. She tells Ned she can't give in. That even the idea of stopping makes her feel like she'd be responsible for whatever happened to Amy. She keeps looking, keeps following up leads, and keeps asking questions. There is no attempt to follow through on the threat, and she hears no more about it. Her search takes her deep into the seedy underbelly of Florida. Sue works her way through countless biker bars and strip joints where a number of dancers swear they've worked with a girl matching Amy's description. It's an endless roller coaster of hope and disappointment. As for Branch, he does another one of his disappearing acts, resurfacing months later in October 1977. In another of his late night calls, he tells Sue that Amy is now in Seattle, dancing in a dive bar near the ferry. According to Branch, these last few years have not been kind to her, and that Amy looks burned out. Branch's parting shot is to tell Sue he's cutting ties with her. Now hear this, he says. This clears any debt I have to you. You're never going to hear from me again. With Branch having let her down so many times before, Sue knows it could be another wild goose chase. But how can she ignore it if there's even the slimmest chance it'll bring her daughter home? Sue's planning her trip to Seattle when she feels a strange fluttering in her chest. 
Pain laces up her arm, so sudden and sharp that her legs give way and she crashes to the floor. Ned rushes her to Jackson Memorial, where she's told she has just had a mild heart attack and is going to need a bypass. Even Sue's monumental will to find Amy can't power her past this hurdle. She spends a week in intensive care, but all she can think about is getting home to pack for Seattle. Sue finally makes it out west on November 16, 1977, and makes a few encouraging discoveries. A couple of customers in bar Sue checks out say Amy was there the previous Saturday. A bookstore manager and a clerk in a local drugstore both confirm she looks like one of their customers. It ends up being another false lead, though, and after a week, Sue admits defeat and flies home. With the four-year anniversary of Amy's disappearance fast approaching, the Billigs have difficult choices to make. The thought of giving up the search or even scaling it back is an alien concept, but they're starting to reach their emotional and financial limits. Sue's cross-country journeys, following up tip after tip, have depleted their funds to the point of bankruptcy. They make the heartbreaking decision to close the gallery. It's been hard to keep the business running at the same time as pouring their hearts and souls into the search for Amy. And something has to give. Ned takes a job managing a store for a more dependable income. Sue picks up interior design work where she can, but it's still not enough. The biggest setback of all comes when they realize they can no longer afford to keep up payments on their house. They move into a smaller place around the corner. The worst part for Sue is she thought that Amy might come home one day and find no familiar faces there waiting for her. She leaves a picture of Amy with the new owners just in case. Sue had always kept Amy's room exactly as she'd left it, ready for her return. But in the new house, she can't bring herself to unpack Amy's things. It would be like creating a shrine, like conceding she was dead. Drained of the resources they once had to search for their daughter, the Billig family finally concede in early 1978 that they must now put all their faith in the police. This new chapter in their lives isn't without fresh challenges. Home life is difficult. Talking about Amy hurts too much. And by Sue's own admission, they let long silences paper over the cracks instead. Josh is now older than Amy was when she disappeared and becomes a self-taught stonemason. It's as if by building walls, he's protecting others, doing what he couldn't do for his sister. Ned is diagnosed with depression. The medication affects his concentration and ends up costing him his job. It's not that the Billigs have given up on Amy, more that they've realized they just can't keep up the frantic pace of the past four years. The Billigs live like this for the next few years. They still have the same phone number following the move, so tips and sightings continue to come through regularly. These always ramp up any time the story reappears in the press. That's exactly what happens in March 1979. Fresh back from a vacation, letters of support and phone calls flood in. Most are sympathetic, offering thoughts and prayers. One of them is from a man whose voice Sue doesn't recognize, but it's about to become one she'll never forget. He identifies himself as Hal Johnson and says he's seen Amy in Fort Pierce 
a town a couple hours north of Coconut Grove. He tells Sue he's an artist, and Amy is due to pose for him in a few days. Sue jots down his address and number, but something feels off. She can't put her finger on it, and calls him back immediately, only to find the number he gave is out of service. Detective Ina Shepard is still on the case and helps coordinate with Fort Pierce PD, as well as roping the FBI back in. None of them can locate anyone named Hal Johnson. That's where Sue assumed it would end. She couldn't be more wrong. Johnson calls back a few days later. Sue has little patience for him and asks him to describe Amy. She's appalled by his response. Oh, she's beautiful, he tells her. And she's got a beautiful mouth. She knows how to use it. Johnson's calls after this are unpredictable in frequency, sometimes several a night, then weeks without contact. It's as if he's trying to get a rise from Sue. Many of his calls are a variation on a theme. He tells her he has trained Amy as his sex slave, that he has rented her out to other men. The calls leave Sue distraught, but she can't bring herself to change her number in case one day it's Amy trying to call home. Johnson uses payphones, but rarely the same one twice. Authorities have a map dotted with pins showing the locations they know he's called from. The harsh reality is that they simply don't have the manpower to stake them all out. On a hunch, Sue checks back in the journal she keeps and finds a reference she made to a similar-sounding man only weeks after Amy disappeared. It's enough to trigger memories that convince her this is the same person. Whoever he is, whatever his agenda, he's in it for the long haul. He targets dates with special significance, calling on the 10th anniversary of Amy's disappearance in 1984. Sue can't bring herself to let go of the slimmest hopes that Johnson genuinely knows where Amy is. If you have her, tell us where she is, she pleads. If you don't, stop calling. Give us some peace. Johnson responds by telling Sue he's planning to sell Amy to a buyer in Saudi Arabia. Sue tells him they'll pay whatever it takes to get her back. Not more than the Saudis, he says and hangs up. But even Johnson's continued taunts aren't enough to derail Sue's belief that Amy is out there somewhere waiting to be found. While she's not able to fly cross-country to pursue leads, she finds other ways to get exposure for Amy's case. On December 9th, 1987, she appears on a special episode of Oprah. Sue makes an impassioned plea, telling the millions of viewers that the statute of limitations for kidnapping has run out, so anyone coming forward will not be prosecuted. This appearance opens the door to more, and spots on Geraldo and the Today Show follow. All the while, though, Hal Johnson continues to call. Sometimes it's to tease with supposed updates on Amy. Other times, he gives them a location to be at if they want recent pictures of her. Sue and Ned can't bring themselves to ignore him, and with the support of undercover officers, turn up on several occasions. Each time they're left with only each other for company. Johnson, it seems, only wants to be cruel from a distance. As if living in the shadow of Amy's disappearance and Johnson's endless calls isn't enough, times are about to get even tougher. In March 1992, Sue is diagnosed with lung cancer, 
and given four months to live. Against all odds, she responds to treatment, but just as she goes into remission, Ned is diagnosed with the exact same illness. Unfortunately for him, there is no miraculous recovery, and he dies a few months after his diagnosis. Soon after his obituary is published, Johnson makes one of his cruelest calls yet. Ned's dead, isn't he? He asks. You're alone. You'd better watch out. In the weeks and months that follow, Sue swings between pleading with Johnson for information and just hanging up. She continues to report every call to the police, and a new detective on Amy's case, Jack Calvar, takes over the task of hunting Johnson down. Johnson's taunts continue in the same vile vein. He asks if Sue is willing to take her daughter's place, telling her he has cut Amy's tongue out and saying she doesn't have long left. Detective Calvar sets up a sophisticated tracing device on Sue's line, but the next time Johnson calls, they're unable to trace it to a landline. Calvar is convinced Johnson has switched to a cell phone, which are much harder to trace. But Johnson's luck is about to run out. Detectives get their hands on a device that will record the caller ID of all incoming calls, including cell phones, cutting edge stuff. They don't have to wait long. Johnson calls back and Sue keeps him talking while they get his number. They have an agonizing wait while a subpoena is filed against the phone company. Turns out the number is one of a dozen connected to a generic looking import-export company. Their address is nothing more than a mailbox and all the names listed as company officers turn out to be fake IDs. Detective Calvar and the assistant state attorney, Andy Haig, get an uncomfortable feeling. The only people who bury themselves behind so many layers of protection are either high-end criminals or law enforcement. Curiosity gets the better of them, and they start calling all the numbers listed for the company. Some just ring out, but one is answered. And the greeting on the other end of the line is a curveball nobody saw coming. The woman who answers is short and to the point. U.S. Customs, how can I help you? It turns out that the company is a front for an undercover operation. The cell that had called Sue Billig is registered to a Henry Johnson Blair, or Hank to his friends. He's a highly decorated agent and supervisor, once congratulated by the King of Spain for his work in recovering a stolen painting by Rubens. Haig interviews Blair on October 27, 1995. Blair claims never to have heard of Sue or Amy Billig. He tells Haig that their phones are cloned all the time. Anyone could have made those calls. Haig proceeds to play some of the recordings he has brought, and Blair's face reddens as he listens. There's no mistaking that the voice sprouting all those hateful words is his. Haig is expecting defiance, maybe even outrage, but Blair just comes out and admits that he is the man behind the calls. He slumps back in his chair, caught red-handed, then waves his rights and agrees to answer any questions they have. Blair blames it on pressures of the job and alcohol. He shows little remorse and denies ever laying eyes on any of the Billig family in person, 
Nonetheless, he's now a person of interest in Amy's disappearance. A month after his arrest, Sue is going through some of Amy's old journals. She does this from time to time, a way of staying connected with her girl. One entry stops her in her tracks. It's dated six weeks before Amy disappeared. The words take on a new significance given Blair's arrest. Hank says, as soon as I finish school, he wants me to go to South America with him. Blair's wife tells officers that her husband had made several trips to South America for work, although she can't remember specifics. That, plus the fact his colleagues refer to him as Hank, opens up a whole new avenue of the investigation. In his time with Customs, Blair has had access to any number of vehicles and was regularly seen by neighbors wearing disguises. Fake beards, wigs, sunglasses. Although they put that down to his job. Ultimately, though, while the calls are a slam dunk, there's nothing more concrete to link him to Amy. Blair's trial takes place in February 1996. He testifies that what he did was a compulsion he tried to resist. He admits everything. The range of terrible things he said, the threats he made to hurt Amy, but maintains it was all a fiction, a figment of his troubled mind. The jury take two days to deliberate, coming back with a verdict of guilty on two charges of stalking, but stopping short of a more serious conviction of aggravated stalking. This would have carried a far greater sentence, but prosecutors haven't convinced jurors of any genuine threat to Sue's safety. He's sent away for two years, giving a now 70-year-old Sue closure on a painful chapter of her life, even though they're unable to tie him to Amy's disappearance. Sue tells reporters that she'll never admit defeat in the search for Amy, although admits she isn't sure where else to turn. Another person who isn't giving up just yet is Detective Jack Calvar. He starts back at square one, looking at the biker gangs again, trying to locate a number of persons of interest, including Paul Branch. It takes a long time, but in November 1997, Calvar tracks Branch down through his criminal record. The biker has served time for second-degree murder and is out on parole in Virginia. It's a dreary November day as Calvar trundles down a road pockmarked with potholes. Inside a fenced compound, he finds a battered old trailer. Two giant Rottweilers let out a volley of barks at his approach. It takes a full minute for Branch to open the door, and Calvar immediately sees why. The old biker, once a fearsome brute of a man, stands there propped up by his cane. Any muscle has long since turned to fat. Branch's face is covered in lesions and he's missing an eye. Skin cancer, growls Branch. The place is a mess. Branch shares it with his girlfriend and her two daughters, but there's no sign of them today. Calvar keeps it informal, which Branch seems to respond to. They talk for two hours. Branch maintains that he has been telling the truth when he says he crossed paths with Amy, although denies he kidnapped her. The way he tells it, he met her at a biker party where she was being mistreated. He helped her get out in one piece and took her to Orlando where he says they lived together for a while. He says he asked Discrag Harry to look after her when he was sent to jail for a spell. Calvar is impressed by the level of detail Branch can recall. I'm not so proud of some of the things I've done in my life, 
Ranch tells him, and I'm sure I'll have to pay for it. But when Calvar presses Branch, the biker again denies being the one who picked up Amy on her way to her father's gallery. Calvar leaves him be, knowing Branch probably doesn't have long and will likely take whatever else he knows to the grave. Branch dies in December 1997, so when a team of documentary producers working on the Amy Billigs case come looking for him, they find only his girlfriend, who they christen Tootsie to protect her identity from bikers. We've come full circle to the meeting between Sue Billig and the girlfriend who claims to have heard Branch's dying confession. What Tootsie shares is a departure from everything Branch has ever told Sue and the authorities. She says as he lay dying, Branch told her the truth of what happened to Amy. Tootsie drops the bombshell that Branch has left her with. There was no rescue by Branch at a biker party. No life with him in Orlando. No time spent with Dishrag Harry. She tells Sue that Amy died the very same day she went missing. Amy allegedly showed up at a biker party and mouthed off to the wrong guy. He and a few others slapped her around and pumped her full of drugs to calm her down before a number of them raped her. What killed her, according to Branch, was an overdose. The bikers hadn't planned on having a body to get rid of, so they used the alligators in the swamp to do the job for them. When Sue hears this, she breaks down in tears. As producers console her, Tootsie adds that Branch had been leading her on for the oldest motive in the world, greed. And all he wanted was her money, and he got plenty of that over the years. Calvar and the other investigators are willing to accept this explanation, but there are some who doubt the truthfulness of Tootsie's account. It emerges that producers paid her $200 for her time, and some question whether she was telling the truth for truth's sake or just putting on a performance for the cameras to earn her money. Whether you believe Branch's alleged deathbed confession or not, questions still remain. How did Amy get to the party? How did Branch describe her appendix scar if he hadn't seen her? If Amy really did die that day, how do we explain the countless sightings that were shared with Sue? Never mind the discovery of Amy's hair tangled in the hairbrush in Kissimmee. Calvar carries out one last interview that, depending on whether you believe it, leaves Amy's fate open to debate. He tracks down Pompano Red, Branch's old trailer buddy. Red admits he remembered Amy well. There's no doubt in his mind that she was the girl Branch asked him to drive to Virginia. He tells Calvar that when he met her, she was off her head on whatever drugs she'd been given. He handed her over to another biker in Virginia and never saw her again, but thinks she may have headed to New Jersey from there. Greg Anapu, a family friend, Sue's co-author of the book Without a Trace that chronicles the search for Amy, has a theory. He believes Branch picked Amy up, possibly by force, and took her to Orlando. When Branch was facing jail time, he sent his bike and Amy away with Pompano Red, who handed her off to someone else. Anapu speculates that there probably came a time when Amy had simply spent too much time around bikers, seen too many crimes being committed, finally becoming too much of a liability, one that needed dealing with. 
Despite the gaps in the story, Sue finally makes peace with herself and with the fact Amy isn't coming home. She holds a memorial. It's not to mourn Amy, but to celebrate her life. I've had this hole in my heart for so long, says Sue. It's not healed, not filled. It never will be. But I can get on with my life. I can now feel that Amy isn't out there praying for me to save her. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Russell Schmecker, a young killer who preyed on the innocent people of Lincoln in order to silence them. On New Year's Eve, 1975, a student at Lincoln College disappears from his house and is never seen again. Six months later, a 51-year-old realtor is abducted from her home, and all that's recovered is her blood-soaked car. Then, in October of that same year, the young couple are found dead in their home. The one thing linking these mysterious, tragic cases together is the name Russell Schmecker. For more information on the disappearance of Amy Billig, amongst the many sources we used, we found Without a Trace by Sue Billig and Greg Napu particularly helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Ben Bishop. Sound designed by Matias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.